Welcome to Borough Talks, the podcast from the world-renowned Borough Market. We're bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more. Hello and a very warm welcome to Borough Talks from Borough Market um, and an especially warm welcome to the wonderful lady who is joining me today. I'm sat here with Claudia Roden who is one of my very favourite people in the whole world. I've had the joy of meeting Claudia a few times. Um, I won't go uh, as far as presuming friendship but I'm going to say I absolutely adore every time I get to see Claudia and spend some time together and she She's done so much, and so to be able to spend this time talking is a real treat. I'm going to give an introduction to Claudia, but we're going to explore so many aspects of your life as we go through. Um, Claudia Roden, cookbook writer, anthropologist, based in the UK, but grew up in Cairo, studied in both Paris and London. We're going to talk quite a bit about that, I think, about your arrival in London and what London was like when you got here. Um, Published multiple bestsellers, including the international award-winning The Book of Jewish Food and revolutionised Western attitudes to Middle Eastern cuisines in 1968 with the best-selling cookbook, A Book of Middle Eastern Food. Um, Aside from the writing career, Claudia, you presented cookery shows on the BBC and you're also co-chair of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. All of which is a rather formal introduction. What I really want to say is hi. Hi. (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for all the wonderful, nice things you're saying. And I get as much pleasure in seeing you. Oh, Claudia, (laughs) you're always so lovely. I have to say... I'm not an anthropologist. Oh. I haven't even, everybody calls me an anthropologist because I never even went to university. I went to art school. <laughs> and uh, But I think because anthropologists use my work. And so I've heard that as soon as they started opening food studies, uh, yes, I realized that anthropologists, sociologists, are using food as a lens for their studies of all kinds of things. And that's how I became an honorary fellow at SOAS and an honorary fellow at University College London. I saw you give a lecture at SOAS a few years ago, must be five years ago or so now, and it was was absolutely brilliant and packed to the rafters with people who were just, you know, agog to hear all that you say. And it's interesting you say that about not being an anthropologist, but but very much uh, being relied upon by people who are yeah. who want to delve into the in, into these things. Because you, know, you read your work and you know, we're here partly to talk about med, your new, your wonderful new cookbook. And it's hard not to think of that as being a bit of an anthropological, oh, I can't speak, an anthropological study as much as a cookbook because you talk so much about different places and people and culture. But as you say, it's about using it's food as a lens, isn't it? Yes. Yes. And I feel for me, food has always been, and a dish has always been about place, about people. I very, very much remember people and place and, and, uh, Yes, it's not just something out of nowhere. Yeah, and that comes across so much in all your work, and there's lots of that I want to talk about. But let's let's go back a bit. So I mentioned in my introduction that you were born in Cairo, and then I think I'm right in saying you went to school in Paris and then came 
to London. Yes. When I was, uh, yes, I went to school in Paris when I was 15 for three years and did my baccalaureate and then came here to art school because I had two brothers who were going to be here. One of them was a medical student and and another one was younger than me. He was still at school, but here at the French Lycée. And I was living in a flat with them and cooking. Where was your flat, Claudia? Where was it? In uh, in uh, northwest London, okay. very near to where I live now. Okay, that's your neighbourhood. That's your. Yes. Okay, it's always been my ma- neighbourhood, and yes, and uh, I went to Saint Martin's School of Art, which was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, I just loved being an art student. What kind of art were you doing? Well, I was there only for two years before uh, before the Suez Crisis, yeah. when my parents became refugees. But it was the two years was one was beginners, <laughs> of course, and the other one was something just a little bit above beginners <laughs> <laughs> but but we did it means that we learned a whole lot of things yeah. from how to how to paint in oils we did a lot of life studies but we also did sculpture and we did things like um uh, um silk screen printing and crafts and mm-hmm. it's things that were valuable yeah. and uh, so yes i was very happy to have been there but the whole atmosphere of the art world uh, the excitement of going and seeing exhibitions the people i met whom i still meet these days really uh, some of them have been lifetime friends and uh, yes, apart from the food. Yeah. Okay. So go on. Paint, <laughs> paint us a culinary picture yeah. of London in the mid fifties. Yes, I can do it now. I never did before because it would be hurtful. But now because uh, we can take it, you can take it <laughs> <laughs> because it was horrible, really horrible. And we, the, especially the food in the canteens at art school at medical school, and all the kind of food that we could afford. I mean, the restaurants we could go to were wimpy bars. <laughs> yeah, a sort of squashed hamburger. Yeah. Uh, yes, that didn't feel like proper meat. Or but also the kind of stews uh, in, in canteens, even at canteens at a theatre or a film. Yeah. But all the things that we went to that young people loved, we adored, but we couldn't believe that the food could be that bad and even disgusting. <laughs> and coming from, did you come to London from Paris? Yes. Okay, so the food in Paris... Yes. By con- by contrast, not yes. there's not just the food of your home in Cairo, but it exactly, and because in Paris, uh, yes, which had come out from the war, it was six years after the war when I went to Paris, uh, but everybody wanted to to eat well, and knew how to eat well, and I was lucky in that I was in a state lycée, but it was the it was a year they began experimenting, experimenting on education, but also on food. <laughs> and so we had a three-course meal <laughs> that was really, really wonderful. But it was cheap. 
it wasn't expensive. You know, we'd get radis beurre, which is radish and butter and so, you know, to start with. And things that you don't think as grand, but the way they gave them with the butter and with the salt. Uh, yeah, and uh, I was in the, the boarding school part, which was um, a little villa in, uh, or not that little, but it brought in the borders were mainly from the colonies or pupils of the state right. whose parents had died in the war. And, uh, and so we got such good food there. And uh, so it was so a London was a shock. shock. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of food were you? So you, you arrived in London and were you trying to cook? Did you have kitchen yes, where you were? I had a, we had a flat and I cooked. And I really, we invited all the friends. And until now, they remember what I cooked. Go on, what did you cook? And I cooked a lot of uh, food that took a long time. I mean, the stuffed vine leaves I keep doing, stuffed vegetables of every kind, and phyllo pastry, because nobody know, knew of phyllo. And I had to go to a place in Kentish Town where, where they actually made it by hand. Wow in front of you if you wanted to be there because they they would make it and wrap it up for you give it to you but they you if you came at the time when they were making but otherwise you would it was a pastry shop and i'm i'm not sure if it was called it's not there anymore sadly but something like olympia it was a greek pastry shop and they make even um, Kadaifi. It was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And I was always there buying phyllo and uh, nobody in Britain had seen it. Nobody could believe it existed. I would also buy pita bread there, which didn't exist at all. But I did manage, I would go to Camden Town. There was a little grocery, a Cypriot grocery, where I could buy everything which was, you know, tahina, nobody, you couldn't buy it anywhere else. There might have been somewhere else, but I never found it, even though I looked. But there was uh, pomegranate, molasses, uh, bulgur, couscous. Mm. They're all things that you could never get anywhere, yeah. not even chickpeas. You know, you didn't find chickpeas. Was there anything that you couldn't? get that you really missed at that point? Any ingredients that you... Um, no, okay. I could find uh, mastic okay. even. I could find all that, yes. And uh, so we could make all of the things. Yeah. So almost. you're here in London, you're, it sounds like scouting out all these wonderful places that are able to help you navigate your culinary way through yeah. London's yeah, well, no, there was maybe two or three places only. Okay. There might have been on another side of London, which I didn't know yeah. of, uh, but there were just those. Uh, but there were the only restaurants in London at the time where we could get the food we liked was Cypriot cafes. And we were actually in uh, Charlotte Street. There was the Black Cat 
And we were there all the time. And there we could get grilled halloumi. And we could get taramasalata. And we could get the kebabs. It was just heaven being there. And it wasn't that far from me, from Charlotte Street, from, sorry, from Charing Cross Road, where St. Martin's School of Art was. So it was, it was, yes, where we hung out all the time. And at what point, Claudia, did you begin to feel that food might be something which was going to become work, I suppose, or you know, a life work or you know, a career, more, more than just cooking for friends who were coming around? Yes, I, it never came to me at that time. I was just uh, thrilled to be able to cook. I, I must say that some of the foods, of course, I remembered from Egypt, and uh, we did have a cook, but on special occasions, uh, there were when my parents entertained, some aunts would come and they'd bring their cooks. But we, the, the aunts and the cooks were in the kitchen, and I was in the dining room seeing what the mothers were doing. And um, I was given some things to do. And it was usually the little things that took time, and we'd sit around the dining room table to chat. These were events to be together. But so I knew something, but I did buy uh, Elizabeth David's Mediterranean cookbook, and that really inspired me, uh, not at the time, but I did find some Egyptian things there. And I couldn't believe that in an English cookbook, something called melocheia was there, the recipe for melocheia, which is a, an Egyptian soup that the Egyptians adore, but everybody else hates. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but we could, we, yes, we could make it with dried melocheia. Melocheia is a, is a leaf okay. that looks like spinach. Uh, and we couldn't get it fresh. We tried to grow it, but impossible. It didn't grow. All the weeds around it grew, but not the <laughs> melocheia. <laughs> I started collecting recipes when my parents left Egypt as refugees. The Jews had to leave after Suez, the Suez crisis. For us, it meant really the sudden destruction of our community that was a vibrant, huge, happy community. Um, and yes, it had uh, been turning sour while I was away. So I, for me, all my memories were just happy ones about the country, the people, and my, my own extended families, my life, was a very, very happy one. But after I left, there was, yes, the war with Israel. And Egypt were the main soldiers going out to war. They were being armed by the rest of the Arab world, but they were the ones being sent. And yes, so... Uh, but it, uh, it was only until the Suez War, where Israel was involved with France and England in attacking Egypt, that 
the Jews were sent mm. away. And so, uh, yes, it meant that all the people that I knew were leaving and spreading out all over the world. And, well, a lot of them were in Britain for a while until they knew where they would settle, where they could settle. And um, uh, for several years, uh, we were somehow inundated by refugees from Egypt, mainly Jews. Well, they were Jews and who were passing by, going for dinner at my parents and and just seeing them. And one thing that I felt right away from the start that people were asking each other recipes and they were asking in a really desperate way saying, give me your recipe for carabijo, give me your recipe for hummus even. I got a recipe from hummus. <laughs> um, I'll never see you again, probably. Mm. And this will be something to remember you by. And so I realized that a recipe was something so precious. And if I didn't record them, they would be lost forever because there hadn't been a single cookbook in Egypt. There hadn't been a printed recipe that anybody had ever used. Mm. The recipes were just passed on in families. And so uh, suddenly uh, we, would, we would be at a loss. And the families, I realized only then, when they left, were from different origins. Because when the Suez Canal was built, Egypt became a great merchant uh, center. And, and people from all over the Ottoman Empire came to settle in Egypt. And three of my grandparents came from Aleppo. And Aleppo was the great city on the trade routes. And it lost its role completely. So all the merchants came to, well, they went to South America and to, to America and different places, but the majority came to Egypt. And so our food was mainly Syrian. Uh, but when I was collecting recipes from these refugees, they were saying, oh, my recipe comes from Salonika. My recipe is from Istanbul, um, my, from my grandmother. My, uh, my mother was from there. They were from North Africa. They were from, so I realized that, yes, our community was multicultural in a culinary way as well as in every other way because we spoke many languages. Yeah. We were really cosmopolitan. And so Book of Middle Eastern Food came out in, I want to say, 68. Is that yes. right? 68. And what was the reaction to that, Claudia? I'm curious to sort of the perceptions and the the way that was received. I know it did terribly well, but in terms of people, how did people react It took to a it? long time to do really well. Really? Okay. Because I, yes, uh, it um, really was not taken well. 
even though the photos are beautiful, because I went and got from a tourist, Moroccan tourist, off all their fantastic ceramics and silverware and all that. But no, people at first, the idea of the Middle East was not at all appreciated uh, culturally or in any other way, because of course, Britain was at war with Egypt, and that's what we heard all the time. And also then soon there was the oil embargo, uh, Sheikh Yamani and all these, and uh, they were just seen as the enemy, but also seen as uh, desert people uh, uh, who, uh, uh, who, yes, there was nothing good that you can get from there. I think the image that people had of Middle Eastern food was from 19th century British travelers who would go and say they'd been on the desert and that, yes, uh, what they saw was uh, a mountain of, of rice and a, and a sheep sitting on top and and in a sea of fat, and some remarks. I remember I was looking at some of these uh, mentions to see what did they think. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, people would say, the Arabs are better at making love than food. <laughs> <laughs> or rather, they were not at all good at making food. Yeah. And it was seen as disgusting. But of course, I knew that. Because I went to an English school in Cairo, and uh, we, the cooks were all Egyptian, but they made English food, and nobody there, none of the English uh, or English uh, friends, would eat anything Egyptian, because at homes their cooks would be taught to make only, uh, and you know I would tell my mother when I have a party. Please just make jelly, scones, you know. <laughs> so every I had this list, but nothing else, wow. because they'll not like it. Yeah. But of course, <laughs> but so, yes, there was this idea, but it was only when it came out in paperback, and Jill Norman uh, was then choosing the paperback list, and, and she chose... It to be there. I was going to interrupt you quickly, Claudia, to um, give a moment for Jill Norman, for anyone who's listening who may not be familiar with her, because uh, she was, well, she's still, you know, still around, still working, but kind of extraordinary in her role that she played in food writing you know, around that you know, second half of the 20th century. Yourself, Elizabeth David, who we just talked about, Jane Grigson, others as well. I mean, you know, Jill, she has quite the eye for... She did. She definitely, she was rare. I don't think, because as I say, uh, at the time, to be writing about food was the least popular thing in, uh, uh, in publishing houses. It was not appreciated to be a food writer. It was a very low thing. And, uh, uh, but she really, really picked and, and, Yes, at, I think all the books she picked made a difference. Yeah. So it came out in paperback and that was yeah. really and important. I think it was first the young people yeah. 
I think the young people are always the ones who start things yeah. <laughs> because, uh, yes, they hadn't learned from their mothers. Their mothers had been during the war and yeah. they hadn't cooked well. And they were starting to travel and to see, to taste foods. And they went round with a rock sack and, and yes, uh, they would come back and they'd had couscous and they'd had uh, things that were also cheap. And I think that it was healthy food at the time. We didn't think too much about health, but it was. Mm -hmm. But it was particularly cheap for students to have, you know, beans and to have lentils and to have all those things. And uh, yes, so uh, I think it was the younger people who started being so impressed. And so now we scroll on to a point where, you know, food writer, lots of people want to be food writers and people have food all over their Instagrams and food is such a big part of, you know, our culture now. Um, and this the, this food that you write about, this food that you sort of brought to us in the UK really is so popular. There's Yoshimoto Lengi and the Honeys and so many people who are now you know, doing this food and we're talking about ingredients that you can't get, but they're ingredients which now are pretty pretty easy for most people to be able to find in a shop if they want everything to get you them. can find everything yeah. now mostly most things even in supermarkets yeah but i did find i did realize uh, early when it was chefs who became interested in um, and and called me and invited me to say were using your book, wow. but they were using my Middle Eastern book, but also my Mediterranean, yeah. because uh, as soon as I my children uh, left home, I had them very early. <laughs> I was still under 50, <laughs> still in my 40s, yeah. and I decided I would leave too and travel the Mediterranean. And so there, the whole... Uh, Mediterranean became my patch and I did a television series on Mediterranean food but I think the first restaurants they didn't ever say Middle Eastern they said Mediterranean and there was people like Alistair Little and and gradually Morrow was was one but later on but I realized that Chefs, it was also a time when chefs were no longer, I think it was the time already when Nouvelle Cuisine had started and there was a realisation that in France they weren't doing classic haute cuisine and that there was Nouvelle Cuisine and that it, it meant that chef stopped going to France to learn how mm-hmm. to cook or to go to catering to school to learn only French cuisine. It was the first time that chefs uh, could do their own thing. Mm-hmm. And so their own thing was something they learned from books. I think a lot of people learned, a lot of the chefs learned from Elizabeth David and Jane Grigson, <laughs> but there were quite a lot who started doing Mediterranean. And it was really, 
yes, my Mediterranean was was very much going into North Africa, Turkey, the Eastern Mediterranean, as well as Spain and the south of France yeah. and and all that. Well, you make the point in your new book, Med, which is just gorgeous and huge congratulations, but you make the point in that about the Mediterranean and just how different the countries and cultures and foods are across that, which I think is... Uh, wonderful you know, through the book to kind of explore as you just said really you know, east and west and the christian and muslim and you know, what all the differences are but but then also how food is so completely connecting and you talk about a few dishes that are called different things and maybe done slightly differently in different places but share share so much there's so much in common as well with them yeah i think to me for instance they all have the same vegetables they all have the same pulses. They all have the same grain. They also have the same meats. And <laughs> the same birds are 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 flying over uh, and falling on their shores. The thing, <laughs> and uh, yes, and uh, it is all to do with their history. I mean, they have a history of empires. The Romans brought everywhere. Uh, uh, they shared the same empires. It was very incestuous history. And uh, yes, the Romans brought the grain and the grapes and the, and the olives, the olive oil. And yes, every every the Phoenicians brought ways of cooking. They all like saying the Phoenicians brought this fish soup and this way of cooking the fish in salt. And, and the Arabs brought a huge amount. And they also brought the vegetables all the way to Spain. So you do really find everyone uses the same one. But their food tastes different. And you can... I can say that I can, without looking, with eyes closed or blindfolded, know where I am because of the spices they use. They use they because it was the spice root in history, the first spice root. And yes, but each country has chosen their spices and their aromatics, and uh, but also you find. For instance, yes, in the northern uh, Mediterranean, there's more herbs. And there's also use wine for cooking, which the Muslim countries don't. And they use wine, they use alcohol. and But all the, uh, the um, Muslim countries, it is much more the spices and the rose water, the orange blossom, but every possible kind of aromatics that comes from the East, they have got used to. And things like uh, mastic, which is a little grain that grows just in the island of Kios. And these things, yes, they make uh, well, they really do make the difference. But I find, for me, the excitement was to see even the differences between one village from the other. They have a special dish. But then it's because of what happened in that village, what kind of life people had. Uh, and also, of course, the port cities, 
the port cities are cosmopolitan. They are. They have so much in common. I feel personally happy in every port cities. I feel I'm at home uh, because it's like Alexandria. Yeah. It's very cosmopolitan, but there is something of the way of being, the way of entertaining or just being outside with your friends and eating. You know you are in a Mediterranean city, port city, yeah. and you know whether you're Barcelona or Tangier or, yeah, Marseille or anything. Yeah. And, and so... Yes, but then each one has something was a little bit different because although they traded together, this is also because they traded, they all have the same anchovies in tins, the same tuna in tins, because that's what the, they were trading amongst themselves. But yes, uh, there is, it is the differences maybe that make it the most exciting. And you have travelled so much. And one of the things that leaps out when you read Med is wonderful stories of all the travel that you've done in different places and the little vignettes that you give of, you know, being in a certain place and the people that you meet and the food that you have and the experiences really you know, ring out in well, this book and in all your books. And it's obviously so important to you, as I think we said you know, towards the beginning, about people as much as it is about yeah. the actual food itself. Because the food in this book, much of it is very, very simple food, really, is it? Very frugal food. And, and you have a lovely open approach. One recipe, I can't remember which recipe it is now, but you finish the recipe by saying, if you don't have pomegranate seeds, never mind. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's no, just such a lovely open because, attitude. Yeah, because I think that, you know, I had pomegranate seeds in my first book, in the Middle Eastern book. And, uh, you know, a lot of what everybody put, I started it, you know, that they, I have the aubergine dish that Yotam has in his cover of his American book, where there's the aubergine, then there's yogurt with tahina on it, and then there's sesame seeds, not sesame, pine nuts, and... Uh, and, um, and pomegranate seeds. But anyhow... Yes, it's it, pomegranate seeds has become the yeah. big thing. Yeah. But no, I'm not for it being everywhere because now I see it, see them everywhere where they're not. And that's why I said you don't have to. <laughs> I, know. I know. It really tickled me. And I thought it was, it was very um, emblematic, really, of your your <laughs> lovely approach of, you know, just look at things so simply and, yes. and have what you have and what suits you and yes. you say about and something else in the book that if, if it tastes as you want it it's right yes yeah we all get too hung up on you yes. know the correct ways of doing things perhaps yes. and I think yes that a lot of people do worry about uh not cooking it right and there's no such thing and I do say because a lot of the recipes that are going around I know they come from the recipes that were in my book yeah. and because they tell me. Right. Does it bother you? Is it, no, is it a nice I'm thing? I'm honoured because your time told me that is how he learned. Yeah. That's how they all learned. Even in Israel, all the chefs, that is how they learned. Yeah. It was the first book of Middle Eastern food in Israel when 
uh, everything Arab was hated in Israel. And the publisher said, nobody will want to buy it, but I'll publish it because we don't like that culture. There are enemy culture. And actually, that is what has become their cuisine. Not because of me or my book, because they're half the population is, but that's how they learned the real recipes. But I have to say, those real recipes, it's what I happened to know. The people I happened to know, they were mainly the Dueks, mm. which are my family. The Dueks and all the people they married into. And now, this is what people in many countries say is set in stone. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. You can do what you like, I think. But but I do have the feeling that, well, I did, when I got a recipe, I didn't just say, right, this is it. I did go to other people and say, what is your way of doing this? What is your way? And strangely, tradition is so powerful that everybody did the same way. And they kept saying, I do it different. But when I saw, it wasn't different at all. All it had, they did cook the onions more. So they were black. And others did less. There were little differences. But, of course, I didn't... only go to my, the Dueks. <laughs> but I also branched out, even in my first book, it wasn't just the Jews of Egypt. Yeah. Because I once I decided to make it into a book, I had to go and see what everybody does. Yeah. Go to see what Iranians do in Iran. Iraqis, not the, just the Iraqis in Cairo. Yeah. Yeah. but the Iraq is in Baghdad. It's interesting you say that, Claudia, because I was just about to turn to Iraq um, because on a previous session of this podcast, I was talking with um, a chef called Phil Juma who has um, an Iraqi food stall at Borough Market. And we were talking about the responsibility he feels, really, being the most prominent person in London, in the UK at the moment, doing Iraqi food and sort of challenging perceptions about what people think Iraqi food is. And so, you know, he is he's a bit of a voice for that at the moment. And he talked very much about the regionality of that culture and his heritage and the different foods that, that can be across the country. But he also talked about he feels quite a responsibility of being that voice here. And I wonder if you felt that because you know now there's Yotam and there's you know Saris and Itamar and Ian Morrow and all these you know, people who are doing these things. But for I'm guessing for a long time it was you representing that yeah. food culture. Yeah. And I felt it that's why I didn't want to make anything different at all. Uh because I felt I am betraying the country. I'm betraying people. And even going to Spain, when I did my book on Spain, because I say it's a Spanish book, it has to be a Spanish book, the way they do it in Spain. I didn't want to put in just whatever I like into something. No, I didn't. And so I now find it slightly strange because what is happening is, yes, your time, and actually... 
it, uh, the clerks at Morrow said they did learn from my books. This is how they learned. And so I'm more than honored and I adore what they do. I adore what your time does. But what is happening now is that, uh, yes, uh, everybody's copying your time in the whole world. And then people are copying those who are copying. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a take on the take, on the take, on the take. And I think, thank goodness, that I did something that is a guide that people can go back to yeah. one day and see what was it, yeah. real tradition. Yeah. Even in the countries themselves where they didn't do books, yeah. they want to know what the tradition to keep it. But I do say that in MED, I felt free with everybody feeling free <laughs> to, you know, I see somebody who had never been anywhere suddenly did dinners, suppers, and then she told me it was all from my book. And then she did her book, and I could see that she did it. Who was this, Claudia? I won't say. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I'd missed the name. I wasn't trying no, to entice it no, out of you. But, okay, okay. Yeah, but then I was told... It flew off the shelves. Right, okay. And so you see, this is what was happening. Yeah. But I just felt uh, when I was 80, I was felt too old. That's five years ago. Too old to do what I did, although I'm still traveling everywhere. I don't go about researching, uh, trying to drive, um, carry my suitcase, it's not possible. And I thought, what can I do? I still want to do what I do because I love it. It's what keeps me going. And I just thought, what do I love most now? I've got to do what makes me happy. And I decided making me happy was having people uh, eating in my kitchen, at my kitchen table, and and having good food. And then I felt I have to have a challenge. My challenge is, because I really need to really <laughs> do, is what dishes are going to be, gave us the greatest pleasure. Yeah. And so it was for pleasure, absolute pleasure, that I, I was writing. And, or rather, I wasn't writing, I was cooking cooking and then when one dish was marvelous we'd say yes this has to go in the book and then I would test it and yeah. retest it to get it to work but I also felt I have always been a home cook and I have also uh, researched only with home cooks I've been to restaurants I went to all the top restaurants in Spain where they were inventing the Mugarits, the you know the great ones who are now in in the top restaurant. They yeah. they were then already, but in France the Nouvelle Cuisine people, yeah, and everywhere. But my job was always the regional food and the real home cooking. Yeah. I mean, this is a home cook's book. Really, it's a it? home cook's book, but it's also for in the case. For me, it was my strength. I cannot uh, spend all day on my feet and I can't 
uh, carry too heavy things. It has to be uh, easy food. And the thing is, I'm also thinking of my children, my grandchildren. My grandchildren are in their 20s and 30s, and they are cooking all the time. In fact, they were testers. Your family threw out this book, and that's one of the joys of it. It feels like a book <laughs> of real hospitality. It's about sharing food, isn't it? Yeah. But it seems so much, you're not only sharing food with your family in terms of eating with them, yeah. but it feels like you shared the whole experience of making this book yeah. with them. Yeah, because actually when lockdown happened, and I was, I had been in Turkey when there was a conference for female chefs. Uh, international one and there were the Italians from northern Italy when they already had the virus we didn't know we were all kissing and hugging and luckily I didn't hear of anybody becoming very ill but as soon as I arrived the day I arrived I was supposed to be isolating in January Uh, and so Yes, I found I couldn't go out to shop even on the first day. And uh, my children were saying, you mustn't go, you really mustn't go. And yes, I just thought, yes, I can't afford to be ill. And we were frightened. Mm. We were told we could die. <laughs> and so, yes. And so, yes, I we started with my children bringing food uh, uh, and then coming to the back garden. Uh, but then there came a time when uh, I hadn't got a, uh, I hadn't wanted to have a, a publisher because I wanted it just to be ready when I felt like mm-hmm. it, when I felt the book was nearly there. And I wanted just to enjoy my life making it. That was part of why I did it. And almost I didn't really want a publisher. <laughs> but so my agent would come to lunch once in a while. But just then, she had said just before Christmas, um, before the virus came into our lives, she said, Claudia, it's time. Give me a synopsis and give me an, a, a list of, of recipes. Give me a something. So I gave it to her and she had an she sent it to seven. They all wanted it. She had an auction. And then I chose the ones I thought would do the right book. And they said, can you finish it? Please finish it by the end of September. So I had just so many weeks, yeah. months. Yeah. And so I told all the children, grandchildren, you're all going to help me to retest. <laughs> it's all hands to the pump. Everyone's got Everyone. Yeah. And um, and yes, uh, and some friends, including my agent, and some friends abroad or who were re- related, uh, all said they want to cook. But it was difficult for me because I didn't want their taste to be. I wanted them. I had a very strict thing on how to test. You know exactly the measuring, the weighing, the thing, the timing. And also, is it an, is it, I already found one mistake in the book, unfortunately. Oh, no. Somebody didn't, there were two different things that got together. And because, yes, is it for four? Is it for six? Is it for, you know, all that kind of thing. And that was important. And then I said, 
if there is anything that you would uh, you would advise, uh, yes, uh, tell me if you think something was would be uh, a great improvement that I haven't thought of. And then the first thing I got, I had friends that I met when I was at Yale uh, uh, as a visiting. Uh, uh, fellow or something. <laughs> and uh, so they were at Yale and they were, uh, they couldn't meet anybody. And the people downstairs, they gave them the recipe that I had. And they both, they all oh, were cooking and looking at each other on Zoom. And so she told me, the lady downstairs said, why don't you throw pine nuts and pomegranates. <laughs> you see, your, time, your time's influence in America is gigantic. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. even my grandchildren, one of the grandchildren, she, she said, why don't you put sumac on? No, because there's no sumac in that country. You know, there's no sumac in Morocco. Part of it is Instagram, isn't it? And social media and people wanting to post pictures oh, yeah. all the time. And things like pomegranate oh, seeds, yeah. they just make it look so pretty, don't and they? It's so it's true. just, you know, scatter them oh, over. Oh, it's and... true. All my grandchildren want to put pomegranates on everything. <laughs> but no, the thing is with me, I felt free to do my own thing because I'm not saying that this is it. This is inspired by something, by a dish that I had seen years ago and made and stayed in with me as something really good uh, but if it's in Spain I'm not going to make a Turkish thing in Spain no and certainly I'm not going to put tahina in a Moroccan dish and actually you know there was no hummus and tahina in Iraq or mm. anywhere it's only recent yeah. that they've got it because people go to restaurants yeah. that are Iraqi and say, can I have hummus? Yeah. But there was no hummus. Yeah. And I think you know, it, it's so interesting about globalisation, isn't it, about how things are sort of changing. And I think you know, what you've done, as you said a little while ago, is sort of marked not just a moment, but marked traditions within cultures of a certain time that will be there for everyone to look back at when... Things are moving and yes. changing all the time. Yes, because this is what it's going to be. I mean, there's still countries hanging on to their traditions, definitely Egypt and Lebanon and Syria and all that, and Morocco, and there are quite a few. And But in Italy, where nobody learns how to cook from their mother anymore. Yeah. They learn from the internet, but they still want to eat their regional foods yeah. and and the foods that grew out of poverty out of being peasants out of being uh, in a feudal system uh, they love it yeah. and so I don't I hope they're not going to throw away because I'm really very for why not eat whatever you like Cook, make it whatever you like. If you're a r food writer, yes, there's no reason why you should stick to what they do in one city. Mm -hmm. You can. Mm -hmm. But I think don't pretend that it is from that city yeah. because it's a falsification. Yeah. It's like fake news and now it's fake recipes <laughs> or fake this. Yeah. It is inspired by. Yeah. 
which is, uh, but because it's going to get more and more this, and it's going to be a thing of fashion, which it is. And are we going to have people who eat cheap, cheap uh, um, mass-produced food, and the others are going to go fashionably? What is the next thing? Maybe we're going to drop pomegranate seeds and pine nuts. Uh, you know, before them, there was uh, sun-dried tomatoes mm. oh. and, and great... Balsamic vinegar and all these things balsam, everywhere. And, and um, shaved uh, parmesan. Yeah. But I remember going to Australia when everywhere people I was doing a tour was asking balsamic vinegar, yeah. balsamic vinegar. You know, but it wasn't even known in Italy. Yeah. yeah, It had started being known in America when an American journalist went to a, a, a festival and they tasted that and yeah. it was in Modena. Yeah. And in, but now in Italy, they are learning from America, you know, what is fashionable. Yeah. And so actually, I think now, I remember there was a... a uh, the Oxford Symposium, there are people from America coming to say, what is going to be the future? The future is going to be America deciding, apart from, you know, their pizza and their, you know, their hot dogs, which are things taken from the old world, uh, you know, from uh, Germany or whatever, and, and Italy, that also the gourmet eating is going to be led by America, that they're going to choose. And he was the owner and chef of the Union Square. He became. And, and he said, yes, we in America are going to choose what is going to be fashionable. It's going to go through the whole world. And actually, it was for a time. But then I think now, personally, that it's your time. <laughs> yeah yeah and he would say as he has done in you know, many interviews and his books that you know he was very much inspired influenced and on the shoulders of of, of your work Claudia I honestly could sit and talk to you for hours and hours more um but I just want to finish up really by saying about med it is a, a joy of a cookbook to cook from fascinating to read in terms of your extraordinary life and these wonderful travels and you sort of throw away almost little stories about being uh somewhere I forget where now maybe it was Sardinia and you were eating somewhere and a group of guys were at a table who were all hunters and they <laughs> called you over to join in and then you got told off by the manageress for going over and doing their table and you sort of share all these wonderful stories of all these places you've been but it's all also wrapped up I know we hesitate about the word anthropologist, but it's all really wrapped up you know, in your take and your understanding of what's happening across this huge you know, expanse of nations around the Mediterranean. So it's a, it's an enormous achievement, but I should also say it's a, just a gorgeous book to cook from. Simple food, not massive lists of ingredients, just food that people want to cook and eat and share with their family and friends, which is very much at the heart of why you wanted to write it as you say. Claudia, enormous thank you for coming and talking to us. Um, maybe we'll see you at the market soon or yes. wander around the market. I have a lovely memory of um, seeing you at Borough Market. Um, we did your book, your um, Middle Eastern food for the cookbook club. 
and we were doing a big party and I remember you came along, which was fabulous, and everyone was very excited that all our lovely cookbook club members got to kind of meet you in your little speech. And what we were doing was that people were making dishes from your book and then writing up on a blackboard what they thought of them. And I remember the end of the night, you'd been there for hours, bless you, everyone had gone and you were just standing at that blackboard reading the notes that people had left oh. about the dishes. And I just thought it was wonderful that you hadn't just, you know, swanned off and, you know, not thought about it again. You were taking the time to take in what these people had thought about your food. And I thought that said so much about you and your wonderful open spirit and your generosity and how you want to connect with people and share things. And it was a lovely, lovely time having you at Borough Market do that so thank you for that thank you so much for saying all that oh and um we'll see you at the market soon thank you so much for joining us claudia roden and thank you all very much for joining us and listening to this edition of borough talks thanks for joining us today we'll be back with more borough talks soon a reminder that borough market is now open seven days a week for those who can't make it down here you can still enjoy the best of borough at borough market online with nationwide delivery You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market Traders.